Hi there. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, welcome to uh, the, another event of the Forum for European Philosophy at the London School of Economics. Uh, we got a great show for you tonight. Uh, so thank you to our audience. Thank you to the, the podcast listeners. Uh, our sponsors that made this possible are, in addition to the Forum for European Philosophy, the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Sciences, the Department for Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method at the London School of Economics. Uh, so the discussion tonight is called The Evolution of Culture in Monkeys, Apes, and Humans. Our main speaker today is uh, Andrew Whiten. He's the Ward Law Professor in the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St. Andrews. He's the director of the Center for Social Learning and Cognitive Evolution and of the Living uh, Links to Human Evolution Research Center. Uh, and following him, we'll have a discussion with uh, Dr. Jonathan Birch, who's currently a uh, junior research fellow at Christ's College at the University of Cambridge. And he'll soon be joining us here at LSE in September as an assistant professor in philosophy, uh, logic, and scientific method. Uh, so without further ado, let's uh, uh, welcome our first speaker, uh, Dr. Andrew Whiten. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you, Brian, and uh, thank you to all the, uh, the bodies you mentioned uh, for inviting me here, uh, an unusual venue for me, maybe. Um, I'm going to talk a lot about empirical science, um, so I hope you find the relevant philosophy uh, in there. Uh, so here's what I'm going to talk about, as Brian says, and uh, I think I need to start by saying, well, what is culture then? Uh, I brought along this copy uh, of one of the many supplements you get with the Sunday Times. Uh, it's called Culture. So uh, what's in there? Well, there's this lovely lady on the front. That's because this includes a pop festival. But as usual, of course, it's got stuff about the cinema, about the theatre, about the arts generally, and maybe even ballet and opera. And we don't see much of that in chimpanzees that I'm going to talk about. Uh, that's kind of one notion of culture, which for the moment I'm going to call her high culture. Because really when anthropologists and psychologists and biologists talk about culture as a phenomenon they study, they mean something much broader than that. Really all that we learn from others by a process sometimes called social learning, all we learn from others, that then endures long enough to be called uh, a tradition or a mixture of traditions. So that's what I'm taking as, as the basic idea of culture. And so that includes a whole range of behaviours in the human case, like some of these. So rituals, this particular uh, procession, for example, the way we dress, uh, more mundanely, what we eat and how we eat it. Do we use chopsticks? Do we use a knife and fork? Um, our language, uh, written and, and vocal. And then just at the top there, the man with the bow and arrow, just one of a zillion examples of material culture, of technology in particular. And of course, you know, we're surrounded in this room by all that stuff. So humans are obviously richly cultural. Uh, we're far beyond any other species on the planet, a cultural species. And we are our success uh, to that. What about uh, other species? Because you might think that really we're so cultural, it kind of separates us from the rest of the natural world, from the rest of biology, from Darwinian processes. Think of pr contraception, for example, as one particular example. And my case is that, well, it's not that clean or neat. Uh, we can see the foundations of the culture we have 
by studying other animals. And particularly, I'm going to talk about primates to make inferences about the evolutionary foundations of culture rather than the notion that cultures came out of the blue uh, in the human species. Well, let's go back a step. Um, sometimes you see this, this is a popular article, and the, the question is asked, well, do chimpanzees, if that's what we're focusing on, have culture? Um, does any other species have culture? Do lions have culture? Uh, do lizards? Do spiders, maybe, have something we might call culture, in, in the sense that I started to define it? Um, and uh, that's asked as if there's a yes or no answer. And that's also true in a lot of academia, I would say, a lot of academic articles. People wrangle about, does this species have culture or not? And I think that's just far too simplistic for any academic uh, study, whether, whether it's philosophical or uh, empirical. So I want to set that aside. And what I've been doing over recent years is trying to dissect culture into a number of different aspects, let me call them. Um, and there are three main aspects uh, I've dissected out where, to begin with, I'm starting uh, talking about traditions. So these are the three sort of aspects of the phenomenon of traditions. By traditions, uh, I mean behavior that is spread by this process of social learning and comes to be a group uh, characteristic. So there's our, just one example from humans at the top there. The one at the bottom, just to say how broad this notion can be then, is a chaffinch, which is singing, and we know that uh, birdsong adopts different dialects uh, in different regions, and we know from experimental work that those differences are socially learned and pass on and, and they evolve at a certain level. So if we're talking about traditions across the animal world, how might we compare different species and make inferences about the, uh, the genealogy and evolution of this phenomenon. So I've distracted out three particular aspects. One is population-level patterning. So whether we're talking about this kind of uh, ceremony or the dialects of, of songbirds or indeed the dialects of human, well, we can look at the, the patterning across time and space. Culture obviously varies across time and also space. And although the behaviours, the content of them may be very different, we may find similarities in the way they diffuse and form patterns in space and time. But then there is the cultural contents. Here are, are two behaviours that differ very much in the, the content of, of them, a procession, uh, a, a bit of bird song. Um, but there may be similarities too. If we focus on a certain level of abstraction on technology, on tool use, well, we find that a lot of chimpanzee culture is technological in the way that a lot of ours is. Not, of course, exactly in the same way chimpanzees don't have human culture. But there are similarities and there are differences there. And there are similarities and differences at the third, in the third aspect, which is what I call the transmission mechanisms, the processes of social learning, things like teaching and imitation which might underlie the example at the top, might underlie the one at the bottom, or there may be differences between them in the relative uh, significance of those. So that's my overall scheme. And then in other papers, and I'm not going to go into this detail today, I've dissected those further into a number of other subcategories. And I know Jonathan's been reading up something about <laughs> what I've done on this front. So for the moment, let's just imagine them as a number of different aspects of human culture, which are very... Uh, well represented in our species, and then we look at other species, such as the one I'm going to focus on today, our closest relative, the chimpanzee, and say, well, what do they have that might be similar or different in certain ways, um, and maybe there'll be some patterns, whoops, go back, 
Okay, maybe there'll be some things that are similar, some that are different. So if we focus on that first aspect, the spatio-temporal patterning, um, I was uh, uh, honoured, I suppose you might say, uh, to be the first author of this paper that appeared 15 years ago now, Chimpanzee Cultures. Um, and the important background for this is it's amazing when you think about it that 50 years ago, well certainly 60 years ago, we knew next to nothing about our closest relative on the planet. You know, think of the whole of human history, the whole of human evolution, millions of years we've been evolving together on the planet, all those years of, of history, uh, and then beginnings of science and so on, and yet still, 60 years ago, we didn't really know how they behaved. But when we published this paper, it had already become apparent that chimpanzees behaved differently across uh, different regions of Africa, as, of course, humans do. And so what we did in this paper was attack that um, apparent variation systematically for the first time. And I did that by enlisting the help of these uh, co-authors who were all the, long, the leaders of the long-term study sites across Africa at that point, Jane Goodall, Bill McGrew, and others. And what I asked them was uh, to engage in a two-phase study. In the first phase, we just tried to establish a list of potential cultural variations. Um, so what we were asking there was, well, you've worked at your site for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What behaviours do you see commonly there that you've heard actually don't happen anywhere else? And there's circumstantial evidence that that might be cultural, passed on by this social learning process. Or the other way around. So things might be common at your site, absent elsewhere. Or you've heard they're common elsewhere and yet you've worked at your site for 30 years, you've never seen it. Um, and that gave us a list of 65 candidate behaviour patterns that we thought might be cultural, in the sense I've, I've defined it, um, which is already quite impressive, I suppose, in terms of chimpanzee inventiveness, all, all these different uh, candidates. But the important thing was then the second phase, in which for each of six very long-term study sites, we classified each of these variants uh, as one of the following categories. So each research group were given the, the list of behaviours clearly defined and then classify them for your site. Are they customary? Are they pretty much done by everybody? Or at least habitual, done repeatedly by several individuals? So there's a circumstantial evidence that this might be spread socially, uh, diffusing across at least a subgroup, a subculture if you like. But all the other extreme, are they absent? And there it's kind of important to say, well, is that with or without an obvious ecological explanation? If we were looking at a behaviour like this one shown here, which is chimpanzees using natural materials to crack nuts, uh, with, with natural hammer stones and, and wood. If we find that it doesn't happen somewhere else in Africa and there aren't the nuts there, well, of course, that's, that's just uh, boring. Um, but if we find that all the materials are there and nevertheless it's not happening, then that becomes interesting and a potential um, putative cultural uh, variation. So what we did was then narrow those 65 down to, as it says here, 39 cultural variants that we define as customary or habitual at one site uh, but absent at another, at least one other, without, as far as we could tell, any environmental or genetic explanation. And these panels you see here, you won't be able to see the detail, it's the same panel, and it's coloured, the, the, the particular behaviour patterns are coloured in, uh, if they're common, they're greyed out, if they're not, the little no-entry signs means, well, like the nut cracking, there aren't any nuts there, it couldn't happen in some places. Um, and so... That defined these 39 uh, cultural variants. Now, as I say, you can't read that. You probably mostly... Uh, the slide's not that... 
great in definition. You can, some of the people at the front may be able to read uh, the titles of some of these and get some idea of what may be involved. One important thing is that the scope of these includes not just one narrow bit of behaviour, like for, say, uh, birds having a different dialect in your bird song, that's pretty much all we know about the cultures of chaffinches. Here we've got a whole range of behaviour suggesting really rich, rich culture. 39 cultural variants was way beyond what anyone had imagined before, covering food processing, different forms of tool use for foraging, for comfort, and so on, social behaviour, even grooming techniques. So just to give you one first little example, in West Africa, chimpanzees who are grooming each other and one gets an ectoparasite off the other, what do they do with it? They put it on their forearm and they squash it like that, and that's it, gone. But in East Africa, they will pick a leaf, and they'll put the, the thing on a leaf, and they will inspect it carefully, and then they will decide one of three things. They'll throw it away, um, they'll squash it in the leaf, or they might eat it. So that's the difference between East and West Africa. And then courtship gown bits as another thing there. Now, I don't have time to take you through all of these 39, of course, but... Um, I know I'm giving a public lecture. I'm assuming people that aren't really familiar with these behaviours. Um, I'm just going to show you two or three. The first one, it's the one in top left of the, um, the panel there, is only seen, has only been seen, at Bosu in Guinea. And what the chimpanzees do here is climb to the top of a palm tree, which is not that easy to do, and then they take one of the fronds that someone's often used before, and they use that to beat into the growing point. So they've taken what they can of the food from the nutritious growing point of the palm tree, and then to get further down into it, they beat down with this tool, which is what you're going to see here. So we start with a little cartoon showing uh, that sequence, and then here, you'll see it better in a moment, is a chimpanzee doing this with one of these palm fronds inspecting the end. So it's a very forceful action, very strange, you know, something you don't see anywhere else in Africa, but here, all the chimpanzees do it. That's what they do. And in fact, it gets them through the dry season when uh, they're really pushed for food. Okay, so that's one example just from Bosu, top left there. But slightly more widespread, I'll give another example, which is that nutcracking I mentioned before, which is done with wooden hammers or stone hammers. And we've just got a few little video clips to illustrate that. That's happening at both those West African sites. It's spread across about 700 kilometers. Here we go. A wooden hammer used to crack a nut, and then one in a tree here. Then over that side, you're going to see that's a big stone hammer used for particularly hard species of nut. This shows how tricky it is. Often don't try it in a tree. Um, and it can take seven, eight, or nine years to perfect this, because it's not just a question of picking up something heavy and smashing it on a nut. Then you just have powder. What you've got to do is to crack the shell and preserve the nut, and that's why it takes uh, youngsters that long to learn. So there we've got a behaviour, which, as I say, we're seeing at these uh, two sites over in, in the West here. And the question is, well, you know, can we infer that these behaviours are cultural because we're excluding these other explanations? So it's a kind of approach by exclusion. Um, on the environmental front, um, <coughs> people have been to different parts of Africa, uh, in Central Africa, and even on the other side of a large river here, I guess it's that one there, the Sassandra and Zoe River, where the behaviour is common on one side and then you go to the other side, it's just not happening. It hasn't got there. Um, and people have gone and checked, yes, there are all the raw materials. You know, I, as a human, know what's involved. I can go and do it. But it hasn't spread to the chimpanzees there. So there's that environmental explanation, which you think you know, we could put aside on that basis. What about the genetic one? Well, maybe, uh, you might think, excuse me 
a moment. Let me get that right again. Goes about there. Um, you might think, well, maybe it's an instinct uh, that those West African chimpanzees have evolved over the years and the East African chimpanzees have never evolved that instinct to do that behaviour. Um, one of the reasons we think we can set that aside is we did uh, behavioural experiments with East, those East African chimpanzees. There's some of them who, because of the bushmeat trade, have been orphaned. They end up, the fortunate ones, on a sanctuary in an island uh, in uh, Uganda in a large lake, Lake Victoria. Uh, and so we thought it was safe to play God and do the experiment where we introduce nutcracking and see if it spreads. And so here is this uh, chimpanzee on the right with Mawa, uh, was taught to crack nuts, and then our experiment was to see whether young infant uh, chimpanzees or juveniles who watched that would learn it. I'm not going to show you all the graphs but, or the statistics, but the answer to that was yes. If they did, they picked it up and they learned it. So that, I think, sets aside the the alternative genetic explanation, and all this kind of evidence goes together then to make the case uh, that we're arguing for. Um, I'm going to show you this video clip, however, and I need just to go over to the machine to do that. What you're going to see here is uh, just a little episode which is kind of incidental to the main study showing that the behaviour was picked up by social learning, um, because what you're seeing is one chimpanzee, as it were, starting to step into the other's shoes. I always introduce this, in fact, by talking about my, my father-in-law uh, used to watch the boxing on the TV. And he would love to watch it, and you'd see him sitting there, and then he'd, he'd start to do this kind of thing. I think we're all familiar with that kind of identification, involuntary identification almost with what's going on there. Um, and now that, that, that has common neurophysiological uh, explanations. Uh, so it's as if we're kind of imitating everything we see in our head. Most of the time it, it, it is, as it were, inhibited, but it can spill over like that. So that's what you're going to see in this little guy on the left, who's just three, um, who's just starting to nut crack. And I think this is behaviour which is quite unusual to see, and we didn't even see it amongst all chimpanzees. But where you do see it, it, it suggests, no, this is, as we are, uh, this kind of cultural mind of identifying with what the other's doing and almost not being able to help yourself doing something uh, similar. So hopefully this will play. Here we go. There's no sound. <coughs> You'll see it straight away. So they sometimes say, don't they, picture is worth a thousand words and a video can be worth a thousand words except that I don't know, I've been playing this a number, number of years and keep saying, wow, and uh, neuroscientists who are studying mirror neurons say, wow, and so on. We've just done a detailed statistical, frame by frame, and then sophisticated statistical analysis showing us that we're more objectively that what you see, what you perceive, is really there. This, the, the youngster uh, actually synchronises with what uh, the adult's doing, and that should be out tomorrow in Nature's uh, scientific reports. Okay, so, uh, yes... So there's um, some evidence of looking at this population-level patterning, and again, I'm just taking this particular example of our closest living relative uh, rather than uh, other species of primates. Uh, so what comes next? Yes, okay, conclusions from that, uh, which are two main ones I want to put uh, forward here. One is the one I've already mentioned, that there are as many as 39 multiple and very diverse traditions across, across those different aspects of behaviour. So in that sense, reflecting something we see in our own species. This is really kind of how we define cultures made up of multiple traditions 
like this. Because the second thing is something I haven't really commented on so far, that if you think of each of these panels as like a patchwork quilt, you can probably just see they're all different. If I watched a chimpanzee for long enough um, and could tick off, in some cases, just two or three or four of those behavior patterns, I could tell you where the chimpanzee comes from on the basis of its, what we're inferring is its cultural profile. Just as for a human, you see, well, they're eating their food with chopsticks, they're eating a certain kind of food they like to eat, they communicate in a certain way, they dress in a certain way, they probably come from some particular part of Asia, let's say. So, so for uh, chimpanzees. But... There's still that nagging doubt. I talked about the example of the, the nut cracking and how we excluded other explanations. But it's difficult to be really sure of that, we feel, if we're really sort of crit critical about this. Maybe there is just some environmental difference uh, in those palm trees. Maybe, although it's the same species of palm tree, the same subspecies of chimpanzees at those two sites in, in West Africa, maybe there's some subtle difference. What we as experimental scientists, which is, I am very much, would really like to do to clinch the matter and test the matter would be to do an, an experimental manipulation where, for example, we might take chimpanzees from, let's say, that uh, pestle pounding place, uh, at Bosu, uh, the, the behavior they were doing in the palm trees, and we'd parachute them into somewhere else in Africa and say, okay, now does it spread? Kind of that's the thing we were trying to do in a different kind of way with those chimpanzees on, on the island, not actually moving a chimpanzee, but training a chimpanzee to do something. So what we've done, because it's so difficult to do that kind of experiment ethically and practically, although I will come back to the, uh, the wild a bit later, we've done a whole series of experiments in captivity with chimpanzees who are in big zoos or in big primate centres, and I'll tell you a couple, about a couple of those, because I think they tend to, they, they help to sort of clinch the case we're making for, the, for um, the cultural nature of this species. So what we have here, the circles are two different species of, uh, sorry, two different groups of chimpanzees who can't see each other. And we present both groups with the same problem. It's a naturalistic kind of problem uh, based on our studies in the wild where there's some prized bit of food. It's a large grape. It's stuck in the middle of this thing behind a blockage. They can see it, but they can't get at it unless they use a stick tool. But we showed that chimpanzees couldn't work out how to do this. So what we did was took one chimpanzee from here and separated it from the group for a little while and showed it one particular way to do this, which is to simply put your stick under this, this part here and lift the blockage up out of the way. Then the grape rolls forward and you get it. Lifting not something that chimpanzees naturally use tools for. But over this side, we took one chimpanzee out and we showed her that there's a different way to do it. There's a little flap at the front here. And if, if you get your stick in there, you can actually push the blockage backwards and knock the grape off the back. It will roll down uh, on the lower pipe of the pan pipes here and, and the chimpanzee gets it. So we trained those. So we now have two experts who know how to solve this, but in two completely different ways. We then reunite them uh, with the rest of the group here. This chimpanzee isn't called Amy White, and this is my daughter, uh, who kindly did the drawing for me. Um, and then the question is, of course, well, does, do these two different behaviours spread differentially? And the short answer is they did, and I'll show you the data even in a moment. But uh, I want to use that, having introduced the idea of it, just to present uh, slightly more detail quickly, uh, a more elaborate version of this, where we're asking the question, well, could traditions actually spread, not just across a group, but from group? To group, which of course they would have to have done if our story about, say, nutcracking spreading across 700 kilometres of West Africa were correct. And so what we did here was the same idea I've just introduced. 
We have two, we have a, one problem, but you can tackle it in two different ways. You can either open a hatch here, put your stick tool in, stab the food and pull it out, or you can lift a hatch up in a different place, use a different tool, push it out through this tunnel. And here we had three groups who could see their neighbours through large windows. You can see down here at the bottom. And another three groups who could also see their neighbours, but they couldn't see the other triplet of groups. And we introduced one way of doing this uh, behaviour here, just to one individual, and we introduced the other way of it here to one individual in this group. And then we reunited them with the rest of the group as before. So once half of this group were mastering the task, we moved it here so they could watch. Then they got it to do. Finally, it's over here so that they can watch. And then it ends up here and we see what they do. Similar across uh, this series here. Well, here's a little graph. So here's one chimpanzee doing it one way. And the other graph, this is, I think, the first hundred things they do. Uh, doing it a different way. What happened in the first group? So if we play the sequence, we see, yes, we've already got a highly statistically significant difference between the groups doing it one way or doing it the other way, except that there is one uh, black sheep here in the family who works out you could do it the other way, uh, the way the other group, in fact, is doing it. And that's this stamp technique, which you might think is what my postdoc calls the more chimpy way. Goes with the grain of being a chimpanzee, liking to use a stick to stamp things. And so you might think, by the time we've done the experiment, because once, as I said, once half the group here are doing it, it moves on to the next thing. It, that's true, whatever they're doing. So they might all be doing the same thing by then. But in fact, if we played the whole sequence, that's uh, not the case by any means. To the contrary, this group here, you can see, is only doing what the behaviour was that we seeded here, and which was common, the most common all the way through, except for a few little corruptions. But the, the cultural process, as it were, overrode those, and everyone ended up doing the same thing. And that was just one experiment. Uh, so I'll just show you the same data here in a different way. Each of those blocks is one of those chimpanzees, because we can add to that doing uh, a, a similar kind of experiment uh, with a different task here at the top. I'm not going to go through all the details of that, but you can see from the colour coding, the blue and the green now, we get the same kind of effect. And because we've now got two traditions, just two, that's minimally counting as our notion of culture being made up of multiple traditions. And here, of course, for cast iron, we, you know, the, the inference is cast iron, that this, this is social learning because it's a controlled uh, experimental um, paradigm we're using here. And in fact, we did it at another place, the Yerkes Centre, in uh, Atlanta, here's those panpipe results. The one introduced poking, the all group did that. And the one where we introduced lifting, most of the group did that, although some worked out you could do poking, as I say, maybe the more chimpy, chimpy thing. Um, so I'm not going to go through all the details, but I think you can see there's a rich set of empirical data demonstrating this. Um, hand clasp, however, wasn't something we introduced experimentally. It's this behavior here. Whoops. Let's go try and go back this behaviour here, where chimpanzees um, join hands together like this in a kind of A-frame and then groom underneath. And interestingly, that parallels the fact that in West, uh, East Africa, um, at the Mahali Mountain site, that's what chimpanzees do. And yet, just a couple of hundred miles away, at Jane Goodall's Gombe site, it's never been seen in, in 50 years. They don't do it. Uh, the same thing happened in Atlanta. It appeared, and then it spread across the group over a period of about three years. It's never, no one's ever done it here. So um, that's chimpanzees. Now, um, I'm talking mainly about chimpanzees in this talk, um, just to focus on one species. It is our closest relative, where we've done a massive amount of work. But we've studied several other 
different primates. And so just here's another example from capuchin monkeys, a New World monkey, much more distantly related to us, but same, similar kind of idea, but a simpler behaviour where they're tackling this thing we call an artificial fruit. You've got to tackle it in certain ways to get at the edible bit in the middle. And you can either lift up the flap here or slide the same flap to the side. So again, it's the same problem, but one monkey in each case, we train to do it in one way, and then we put them with the rest of the group and say, does it spread? And uh, even on day one here, it spread differentially amongst these two groups. You might think this would be very confusable, but uh, it had this kind of fidelity. So it's really quite impressive. By the end of the week, we've got these two groups uh, behaving in different ways. If you like, incipient traditions. Probably over time, they would erode. I mean, this, this is just a really sort of demonstration of, of how it can go. So then we've got those two examples from chimpanzees, from uh, capuchin monkeys. And the next question is one of those other aspects I've talked about. I'm not really focusing much here today on, on the content question, but the mechanism question, well, how are these cultural variations transmitted? How are they learned um, and passed on? Um, some of the papers... Um, that will be published on this, uh, this gets very complicated, horribly complicated, more complicated than I want to go into this afternoon or this evening. Um, but that's just to uh, illustrate um, how complicated and how, 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 yeah, how complicated is the dissection of different processes into all this stuff. But we can simplify it for now into three main categories. Imitation, which we all, everyday uh, expression, copying the form of an action of somebody else. So if we take the example of our panpipes there uh, and they'd seen lifting to, to go and lift it up would be uh, imitation in that sense. But much simpler would be what's often called enhancement, stimulus enhancement or local enhancement. It's just focusing on uh, or just noticing that there's some sort of interesting stuff happens around there. And then by trial and error or perhaps more systematic exploration, you, you could maybe work out how to do it. But that's a much simpler kind of process than being able to copy the whole form of the action. And then we've got this interesting category, which is called emulation. If you go to a dictionary and look at emulation, it will probably define it as imitation or, or the other way around. But technically, people in this area have distinguished um, learning about the results of actions rather than the actions themselves. So you might realize that if that blockage rises up, then the grate falls down. You're sort of understanding how that bit of the world works, if you like, a little bit of folk physics or whatever you call it, the chimpanzee folk physics. Um, engineering, if you like, uh, rather than copying an action. You might end up then doing the same thing either by trial and error or intelligently uh, tackling it. You know, oh, I can see how to, to raise that thing up. I'll put my stick underneath it and raise it up. Uh, well, that would be emulation and not actually copying the action. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that despite that expression, to ape, and you might think that means that you know, apes ape in the sense of imitating um, a lot of evidence suggesting that what might look like imitation is in fact just emulation. They're really learning about how something works out there that nuts are crackable in a certain way, for example, and then working out, sometimes by trial and error over a long period, how to do it and coming up with something similar. So there's a major question in our area. Are primates, or indeed any other species, emulators or really imitators? Um, there's no question that our species are imitators. Um, and some people have answered yes to that, that question, such as Mike Tomasello's group in, in Leipzig and 
the Max Planck Centre there, I think, largely, and we disagree um, for various reasons, but uh, here's a couple of experiments on this. One is, well, we do what's called a ghost experiment. So we actually take the agent out of the situation. There isn't a chimpanzee there making, uh, getting the grape out of here. What we do is attach a bit of fishing line up here, which maybe some of you can just faintly see, um, and we raise the blockage up and down, and each time it goes up, the grape comes out, and they see that many, many times. Uh, Sometimes they get a grape, as they would if they were watching another chimpanzee do it. And the question is, well, can they learn from that? If they're emulators, if they're learning how this thing works, then, well, here's how it works, um, so go and do it. And then we did a second version of this where we actually put the stick in place like this and raised that up with fishing line. And you might think, as a human being, looking at that, what would you think? Well, it just surely gives the game away, doesn't it? You see that happen, you think, well, I can make that happen. But in fact, uh, chimpanzees didn't learn from that, that or this um, uh, display. Although, as we've seen, they'll very readily learn across the whole group if they're seeing another chimpanzee do it. So that's one reason to be sceptical of emulation in that extreme sense of just learning how something works by this, if, 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 if um, the events themselves are the only things uh, that happen. If it's a simple kind of display, then there is some uh, learning, um, and this is a, a follow-up study showing that. If, if it's just something where uh, a hatch moves to one side or another, well, chimpanzees will emulate that, even if they're not watching a chimpanzee do it. Um, but then quite quickly they start exploring how to do that and end up doing it, pushing it both ways. Whereas if they watch a chimpanzee doing it, 99% of the time they push it the same way they saw the chimpanzee push it. So again, a certain potency in actually learning from others. So if you put these two studies together, I think it shows that by and large, chimpanzees really seem to need to see an action done to pick it up, which is, really matches most people's notion of, of imitation. However, we think things are more interesting than that, more interesting than this dichotomy. Um, I think I suppose I spend a lot of time pushing aside dichotomies and saying you know, it's more complicated than that, dissect it in a more complicated way which matches reality. Um, and uh, thinking of imitation and emulation as much more of a sort of continuum of fidelity, from high fidelity imitation to low fidelity emulation where you're just recreating the results of, of, of some action or some last part of it. So here was a study in which young chimpanzees, again, in that island sanctuary, see uh, this kind of artificial fruit, um, which um, they have to uh, attack with a tool. So first of all, they see a familiar caretaker taking a stick tool, getting rid of some defense on top, and then stabbing the stick in the top several times. Then they pull the stick out. They get rid of some other uh, defense here, little, pushing some little door to the side, and they push the stick in, and then they're able to extract rake out some food. So, well, imagine you've seen that. Now it's your go. You're the young chimpanzee. What would you do? Well, we predict that what an intelligent imitator here would do is, is copy all they've seen. You've seen that's what works, so do that. However, if you're in a different condition of the experiment, we predict something slightly different, which is that... Uh, here you're faced with a completely transparent version of exactly the same box. It's exactly the same, except it's all transparent. And when that stick goes in the top, you can see that it just beats on a kind of a, a central surface here. It can't really be affecting anything that happens down here below, which is where eventually the food's extracted in this, this way. So we predict here that if you're an intelligent copier, you'd miss out that bit at the top, okay? And you'd just go for the, the bit at the end, a more emulative uh, 
approach, if you like. So we did this with children as well as with chimpanzees. And here they get three goes. This is what we predict. They get three goes with the opaque one, and we see what happens. And we're predicting that they'll do that irrelevant action in the top. That's what they'll do. But once they get on the, to the transparent or the clear box, um, they'll switch to doing the relevant action first and miss out the irrelevant. So here's what we've predicted, and the wonders of science, um, here's what we found. Completely different. What we found was that chimpanzee, uh, sorry, children copied everything to our amazement. So even with that transparent box, they went and did all this stuff uh, in the top. These are three- and four-year-old children. Um, so that was a surprise. And it isn't because that's what they do to begin with, because if they start with a transparent box, um, they still do all that. So, chimp so we assumed that children would behave in this intelligent copier way, and then the question was, well, would chimpanzees? Well, children didn't. Chimpanzees did. <laughs> so, which is the intelligent species. This is sort of tongue-in-cheek way of sort of thinking about this. So chimpanzees, uh, they didn't copy so much to begin with, but they did uh, copy most of what they saw. And then when they switched to the transparent one, straight away there was this step function here. They, they immediately uh, switched and missed that out. So I think chimpanzees, uh, I would now describe them as having kind of like a portfolio of different social learning processes, which include more faithful imitation and less faithful emulation, if we put it that way here, um, matching uh, horses to courses, really. Uh, so the puzzle is, well, what about the, the, the children? Um, and perhaps the answer is that, in fact, we are... Oh, well, perhaps I should preface that by saying that developmental psychologists... I'm a bit of a developmental psychologist. I study children, but professional, full-time developmental psychologists picked this up um, and developed a whole little sort of industry of, of experimental research on what they've now called over-imitation. And you can see why they're calling it over-imitation. Um, children copying in the, this kind of blanket way... Um, why? Well, perhaps it is because we are such a cultural species. It, it's actually a good rule of thumb, if you like, to copy everything an adult is doing intentionally, apparently, um, and um, intently um, copy it. And most of the time, it's going to take you in, in a good direction. If not, sometimes you may end up copying the wrong stuff. Um, but you've years to discover that and, and, and weed out what, what's not so important, whereas chimpanzees apparently more discriminating. Um, so um, that leads me on to another aspect where we're going to talk about rules of thumb, which is the phenomenon of conformity, of doing what others do just because everybody, that's what everybody's doing. And I use this slide to introduce this now. And you know, at first sight, it's quite nice because it looks like a herd of sheep, right? You're kind of paradigmatically um, conformist. You might say, if you're a sheep, you do what the rest of the flock does. Uh, but of course, these are human beings. And um, I think it's actually one of those works of art, actually, <laughs> rather than um, something very real. But we all, I think, can think of things that humans do where we do this amazing conformist thing. We do all this kind of stuff because. Well, that's what you do if that's where you're brought up and that's what everybody does. Um, uh, okay, so that's us. Um, what about the primates? Well, with various studies, in fact, that the chimpanzee panpipe study, the, the title of it when it was published was um, Conformity to Cultural Norms of Tool Use in Chimpanzees. And that was because, you remember I showed you some instances where chimpanzees diverge from what most of their group were doing. Um, but what we found is when we went back and looked at them two months later, they tended to return to the fold and be doing what was the most common behavior in the group. 
Well, here's a study not from chimpanzees, but we are now at last getting back into the wild and doing various experiments which we find easier to, to do to begin with with these little vervet monkeys in South Africa. So this is part of a big uh, Swiss collaboration project, and the key person is Erica van der Waal, my postdoc, who, who's uh, worked on this. So what we did here was we studied these vervet monkeys where uh, once a month they were getting a big box of, of maize corn, which was a sort of quick and dirty way of finding out who, what their relative ranks were in terms of who got there first and who got there later. But on the back of that, we thought, ah, let's do this study where we divided it into two and we dyed half of it pink, half of it blue, and one of those we made taste very nasty by soaking it overnight in aloe juice um, so that the group learned only to eat one. It only took three exposures once a month for them to be only eating one. So here's a group who've learned to eat pink. Um, that's another shot of them. But here's another group who just sit on the pink to eat the blue. And we had four groups. Two we trained uh, to all uh, eat blue, and the other all to eat pink. And we had a lot of monkeys here, over 100. Erica knows them all by their faces, amazingly. Um, and so our first question was really about development, about young kids, what, what they learn. How much um, are they influenced by what is happening in their group? So what we did was on those three first occasions, we trained them once a month. Uh, and then we took all the, the corn away for four months and brought it back then later without any nasty tasting material in it. The reason for doing that was the first training phase was done when there was a birth, a new birth uh, season, a cohort of infants who wouldn't be eating any. But four months later, when we bring it back, they are stating to take solid food. And now, remember, it's got no nasty food in it. So the question is, what would these infants do? The blue and, corn, blue, blue and pink corn, perfectly edible. You could eat either. But all the rest of your group are only eating one colour, the pink or the blue. Well, the answer was quite dramatic, that all of them, except one, went for the local preference. And the one was a kind of nice exception that proves the rule because um, it was the infant of a very low-ranking mother who could only kind of quickly go in and just snatch a bit of food. It was the na previously nasty-tasting one because uh, all the other monkeys were eating the other one. Now, of course, it tasted fine. She ate it. And her infant, that's what her infant ate. So 27 out of 27 infants, that's what they opted for, was the local group norm, if we can call it that, in the statistical sense. That's very potent vertical social learning. But the reason this paper uh, was in science was we were very lucky because males, when they mature, migrate between groups. Um, and five moved in. We didn't know who they were. We knew they weren't our males. But other males moved between groups like this. And ten of them, fortunately, moved from a group where everybody had one colour into another group and everybody's eating other colour. What would you, well, what would you do? I'd, li I'd like to ask you, actually. Uh, so here's, here's the question. A show of hands. So I'll give you three options. You're one of these monkeys, male monkeys. You move in groups. Um, or perhaps you're the scientist studying them. You can predict what they're going to do. Would you predict that they would stick with what they know? They've learned this taste. You know, one tastes horrible. One is the one to eat. Would they stick? Would conservatives stick with what they knew? Or would they see everybody's eating the other one and immediately change to that? Or, thirdly, would they stick to what they know to begin with and then start to notice, hmm, others seem to be eating the other one, and then try that? So, so there's a three options. So, show of hands, who, who would vote for the first one? Who do you think you would, or they would stay conservative? A few. Okay. 
what about uh, the second one? So they move into the group and then immediately they switch. A few, okay. And who think the third option? You go, yeah, okay. Most, uh, almost everyone, most people think that. And that's what we thought. Uh, that's what we predicted. But it's the group who said the second one who were right. Because they did switch, amazingly. So here's what they had to begin with in their, their groups. And they moved into the other group. And even the first time they ate anything, several of them switched. But what was crucial, I'm putting this column here, because... Of course, they're moving in their low ranking to begin with. They've got to find their way. And once they could take their choice when they weren't outranked by anybody there, they all switched to what the local uh, group norm was. It's quite a dramatic effect. And we describe that as conformity. There's just one, again, an exception, uh, Lecker here. Um, and he was interesting because he unusually moved into this new group and rapidly rose to top rank, became alpha male. Uh, so maybe it's something to do with that, but he didn't switch. Uh, we don't know. There's N of one of him, Lecker. Okay, so I've been talking mostly about some of the similarities, uh, but also, I think, uh, expressing some of the differences between ourselves and, and other animals like these primates we can compare ourselves with culturally. What really seems to stand out as what um, distinguishes us from some people would say every other species, is that our culture isn't just passed on, it's cumulative. It builds up generation by generation, or even within generations. I mean, we've, uh, many, probably all the people in this room have one way or another seen the evolution of digital technology um, o over a period of years, building, of course, on what went before. None of us could make this projector up here, um, but some of us can, given everything else that's known uh, that we can build on. And here's our best example of this, or best in the sense of, well, this is much older than that, two and a half million years of the evolution of the stone axe or, or stone hammer from the first cobbles up to um, hafted uh, versions and then modern hammers. And I think it was over 500 different kinds of hammers were then being made in Birmingham in the Industrial Revolution. So that's how it goes in our species. And some people would say, and only in our species. I don't quite agree with that, and I'm just going to show you... Uh, getting near the end now, uh, one uh, example which I think is probably the best candidate for being a case of cumulative cultural evolution because it pales in significance to what uh, we were just looking at there with the, the hammer example. Um, but what you're going to see here is chimpanzees in Central Africa who were caught on a, it's a, from a hidden camera coming to take termites. You've probably all seen on the TV when chimpanzees take a little termiting tool and they use it uh, like a stem to get termites out of a mound. These guys are coming in and taking subterranean termites who are sometimes this deep below the ground and it's what's miraculous is, well, how do they know how to do this? Surely this couldn't have just come out uh, in one go. What you'll see is them coming on the scene already with the tool in their mouth here, which is a stem or stems they've brought, so they know what they're coming to do. They've collected the stems on the way. But then when they get there, the first thing they do is make a deep tunnel using more stout sticks. So uh, hopefully this will work. Okay, first chimp is brought his uh, fishing tools... But that's not the first tool he's going to use. But then others will come on the scene. Uh, also carrying their fishing tools. Now, okay, now here's the stout stick. So he's going to clean the stick off a bit, brush it off, make a little indentation where to start, and then start digging down and pushing most of that stick in. 
Most of that stick's going to go down and make a tunnel. And it all strikes me like this is Mr. McGregor digging his garden right with his, uh, with his foot on his spade. And then others, here's females coming on the scene now, a couple of females. And yeah, another female here and another male coming in the background. A bit of greeting and excitement. Um, and then this chimpanzee is going to sit down. You won't be able to see exactly what he does. But what he does is he strips that stem through his teeth and makes a brush on the end of the stem, which makes a better fishing tool. And then, because it's quite difficult, but then he's got to get it down that tunnel. So the tunnel has to be made very well to get the uh, tool down. So here he's going, stripping, stripping the uh, end of the tool and making the brush tip. Uh, there's another one joining him at that feeding site. So, let's just stop it there. So, the, the researchers doing this said, well, you know, this, everything we know about chimpanzees, this just, just couldn't have been invented, as it were, a new every generation. It must have been uh, built up over a long period by some cumulative uh, process. That, that's the inference. But, of course, that pales into significance, you know, if we compare it with this example, or our digital technology, or language. Uh, this is the Indo-European language tree there, just to indicate another way in which, you know, our communication elaborates up and, and builds, it's even building up now, isn't it, you know, hip-hop language and, and so on, uh, evolving all the time. Um, and so we are still at, at, at the top of that cumulative culture tree. So I'll just finish with a few minutes here, just sketching um, what, we, what Carol van Schaik and I have described as um, a, a cultural pyramid um, the base of which is what we call social information transfer or social learning more, more broadly, where information is picked up from others. I gave the example of the monkeys here. Other examples from wolves or little uh, pup here sniffing its mother's breath, and it's been shown that you know, that will uh, shape it, its diet. Um, but we see this across all different kinds of vertebrates, birds, fish, and invertebrates like bees. So bees will watch other bees, and on the basis of what they're seeing, the other bees do go to that flower very useful uh, process of learning. But a lot of that is really quite transient. It won't be the right flowers to eat or the good flowers to go for uh, in a few days' time. So it's only when the effects get um, endure and have some duration, uh, it's been defined in this way, you've got a tradition of behaviour pattern transmitted repeatedly through social learning becomes a population level characteristic. But even that was seen quite commonly across the animal kingdom, talked about the birdsong dialects, a uh, famous example of uh, starting to feed in the top of uh, these old-fashioned milk bottles, uh, which then spread across certain parts of uh, the country. And even fish have traditions which are particular routes they'll follow, and social learning experiments of the kind I've talked about have shown that, yes, they really are passed on um, even from generation to, to generation. So we get traditions. And then Van Schaik and I distinguished... Oh, oh here's another example. Meerkats. Because uh, this brings in what has been called teaching, um, functional teaching rather than intentional teaching. So uh, one of the things that young have to learn to eat is scorpions, which, of course, are deadly. Um, so to begin with, the parents bring scorpions dead. That's what you play with as a pup. Once you've got to a certain level of competence, they'll bring a real scorpion, but they take the sting off. Now you can have the safe scorpion, but it's moving around. And then once they've got that to a certain stage, then they start to bring the whole thing and you've got the real challenge. And if you're a predator, perhaps you need that kind of teaching in a way which young apes don't, because I don't think we see much teaching uh, in the apes. But that's a tradition that, that's passed on in that way. Um, and so then we've got culture, 
which are defined as multiple traditions, went into some detail on the chimpanzee case, but interestingly, the most complicated forms of this are, seem to be seen across the ape. Certainly orangutans, surprisingly, given that they tend to be more solitary, seem to have a whole set of traditions which uh, are somewhat similar. Um, and not just apes. So just one other example of that from cetaceans. Whales and dolphins seem also to have this kind of complexity of culture made up of multiple traditions. Here's just one example which was published alongside our article in Science last year on the vervet monkeys. This is humpback whales who started 23 years ago. One was observed doing this behaviour of not only making a bubble net to, to get a shoal of fish and then coming up and uh, gorging on it, but smacking the surface of the water with a tail and the fish bunch even more tightly and then you can get them even more efficiently. And over 23 years that spread, so with 70,000 plus observations uh, they could put together this picture of the social network of, of the whales and the blue dots in the middle are the ones who are actually best connected in, in this quantitative analysis of social networks and the behaviour spread across them over this period of 23 years. Then finally, we've got cumulative culture, uh, which is how I ended, and that's where I do end, etc. I can just have two, two more slides. One is a plug, oh, plug or an advert. Um, it's the BBSRC, the, the Biological Funding Council's 20th anniversary year, and they're making this a festival year, and they're going to have uh, this great British Bioscience Festival in London in November, and we're one of the, the groups picked, as it were, selected to have an exhibit there, a bit like the, the Royal Society Summer Science Exhibition. So if you're interested in that, come along uh, mid-November, and you can find it on, on the, the web like that. And the final slide is just to thank all my collaborators and, and um, all the organisations who fund us. Um, and I think that's it, yes, except one last thing... Um, I brought along, there's a pile of papers there. If any of you are interested to read more about this, there's a pile of, um, uh, it's a list of the recent publications from our research group covering all this. So if anyone wants to pick that up, uh, the, the copies there. No. Uh, I, I'd, be, I'd be optimistic, well, sorry, I'd be very pleased if, 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 if there are not enough for everyone. There's, there's a fair pile there. Um, okay, that's me done. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, we'll now have a brief discussion with uh, Dr. Jonathan Birch, Birch, and then we'll open it up to public discussion. Okay. Thank you very much, Andy, for a hugely interesting talk. And I'm just going to offer a few brief comments with a view to stimulating discussion. Um, I mean, to start with that, I mean, Andy, you opened your talk with this timeless philosophical question of what am I doing here? Um, and in this context, you know, why, why as a comparative psychologist I've been invited to speak at the, the Forum for European Philosophy? Um, I suppose if one starts with a fairly narrow conception of philosophy as something that ought to involve fundamentally non-empirical sort of a priori analysis of concepts from the armchair, then you know, this isn't philosophy and there is a question of why, why, would, why would we invite Andy? But if we start with a far more broad-based conception of philosophy as a sort of very broad, open-ended inquiry into fundamental questions about the human condition and human nature, then in some ways this is really excellent philosophy. 
And if we think of the sort of questions that Andy is, is grappling with, questions concerning the, the origin and nature of human culture, and what fundamentally distinguishes human culture and human social life from the social life of, of other non-human animals, then you can see these, these really, in some ways, these are you know, philosophical questions par excellence. Questions with a history and philosophy that go back at least to Aristotle. Questions that are what a particularly central concern to Enlightenment philosophers like Rousseau, Locke, uh, Hume, uh, Hobbes, and Kant. And Kant um, famously sort of characterizes the discipline of philosophy as he sees it by the four central questions he thinks philosophy is concerned with. The questions being, what can I know? What should I do? What may I hope? And the fourth question, the most important question, the one that Kant thinks unifies and underlies all the others, what is the human being? And I think it's become increasingly clear over the, the 200 years since Kant, that if we really want to address that question, what is the human being? And the best resources at our disposal to do that involve empirical, experimental, comparative psychology. And so if we start with Kant's conception of what philosophy is, then this is exemplary philosophy uh, going on right here. So to turn then to this, this question uh, that I sort of alluded to, this question of human distinctness, what if anything sets the human being apart from the rest of the natural world? Clearly a central theme of Andy's talk. I mean, you might intuitively start with a view something like this. A view that I think a lot of people going back a few hundred years held. Just that animals are essentially creatures of instinct. I mean, we can put that now in terms of genes and genetic programs. And you know, non-human animals go around performing the behaviors that their genes program them to perform. And that's all they do. Humans, meanwhile, are set apart from the rest of nature by the fact that we've found ways to sort of free ourselves from those genetic programs, to do things that are not in our genes, to do cultural things that we learn from each other. And what Andy's talk has you know, really brilliantly brought out, I think, is that that picture is just far too simple as an account of what makes humans distinct. I mean, in some ways, it's been known for, for a long time that the picture can't be quite that simple because we've known since sort of Linnaeus's time that birdsong is learned, for example. So we've known for, for a very long time that learning goes on in the rest of the natural world. But still, I think it's very tempting to think that not very much learning goes on in the rest of the natural world, that learning is some kind of uniquely human phenomenon. And his talk has really brought out, I think, that that just isn't the case. And what, he, what he's emphasized is that it's very, very hard to find any differences between humans and the rest of the natural world that are not just differences of degree. I mean, we might start off thinking that traditions are a uniquely human thing. And he's shown us that, no, we find things that can be described as traditions in primates and in other parts of the natural world, too. We might think that social learning, the ability to imitate each other, the ability to, to learn things that are not programmed into our genes, we might think that is a uniquely human thing. And he's emphasized that that, too, is clearly a difference of degree, not kind. Perhaps we do more learning, perhaps our mechanisms are more sophisticated, perhaps it's higher bandwidth, higher fidelity. These are all differences of degree, not differences of kind. And again, we might think that there are sort of uniquely human you know, social phenomena, you know, music and religion and things like that. But in a way, you can see all these as 
still boiling down to differences of degree. They're sort of things that become possible when cultural transmission becomes high bandwidth, high fidelity. But it's not something that we, we couldn't even... It's not something that represents a really fundamentally qualitative evolutionary breakthrough. So that leads me to this question of, well, what if, you know, where can we find differences in kind? Where can we find qualitative differences between human culture and culture in non-human animals? And Andy alluded to one possibility in the talk when he talked about cumulative culture. The idea that human culture, unlike the kinds of cultures we find in chimpanzees, um, includes the ability to gradually build up complex uh, sort of cultural traits through little, little incremental steps. But again, I think even there, you know, what, what the talk has brought out is that that too is kind of a difference of degree rather than kind. Because we find very rudimentary examples of this phenomenon in chimpanzees. And again, we're led to this idea that, you know, okay, we're very, very good at cumulative culture. We're very, very good at retaining innovations and building on them incrementally. But really, again, that is just a product of the fact that we learn from each other in a way that is very high fidelity and very high bandwidth. It's just something that sort of becomes possible as the degree of cultural transmission increases. Not the different, you know, not something that requires a fundamentally new mechanism. Um, so let me just throw out a few suggestions along the lines of things that may or may not still be uniquely human, may or may not be sort of marks of human distinctness. It'll be interesting to see what, what Andrew thinks about whether these, really, whether these really do mark qualitative differences, or whether this same strategy of just showing how in the end they all boil down to differences of degree still apply. I mean, one thought I... Uh, is, you know, something philosophers often cite as perhaps a good candidate for something uniquely human is normative or moral judgment. You know, the idea that we're able to very, very easily sort of acquire and learn and internalize the prevailing norms of our community, something we put into action in our everyday lives when we sort of stand in a queue or drive a car on the right side of the road, hold a conversation, and so on. But it's also something that arises very uh, sort of acutely when we apply normative concepts, when we represent something as something that we ought to do, uh, the extreme case of that being a moral judgment where we think um, you know, someone harms us, we think not just, we don't just retaliate, but we, we judge that to be a morally wrong thing. A really interesting question, I think, whether that capacity for normative and moral judgment marks a qualitative difference between humans and non-human animals. A second sort of suggestion I want to throw out there is the idea that you know, yes, other animals are, are not slaves to their genes either, in the way that we are not. But you might think that humans, perhaps unlike uh, other non-human primates, have found a way to decouple their motivation from biological fitness. So that we can perform all kinds of behaviours that are in, in no way sort of relevant to our biological fitness at all. Um, for example, we can sort of... Um, we can choose not to have children. I mean, there's nothing worse for your biological fitness than that. We can choose not to have children in order to pursue careers, in order to adopt children, all kinds of things like that. A sense that perhaps in the human case, behavior is no longer directed towards fitness. Maybe in all other non-human animals it still is. But that too, I think, is a really interesting question. Do we see motivation that is decoupled from fitness in other primates? And finally, a related suggestion that I want to throw out there is the idea that 
along with the ability to perform behaviours that are not directed towards maximising fitness, comes the ability to learn not just for not just learn in order to to, to learn how to maximise your fitness, but the capacity to learn for its own sake. And this is this is not a you know, an idea that, that has a long history in philosophy as something that may be distinctively human. I think even Aristotle suggests something along these lines. That humans are set apart from other animals by the fact that you know, other animals can learn things about their environment, but only humans can learn purely for the sake of learning. You know, not in order to eventually have more offspring, but purely because we, we see learning as an end in itself. So I'd be really interested to, to hear Andy's views on whether that too might be an interesting mark of human distinctness. The capacity to not just learn from each other, but learn from each other for the sake of learning, rather than for some fitness-related end. Okay, so I have a few more issues that I can uh, raise at this time, but I'll just, I'll just stop there, I think, and see what Andy's thoughts are on this question of what, if anything, does mark a qualitative difference between humans and non-human animals. Yeah, okay. Um... Okay, can you still hear? Mike's still uh, working there. Just, just on the first part of what you said, before you got on to those, I just wanted to quick, quick a couple of comments about the question of why am I here, as it were. Uh, is this philosophy, or where's the philosophy in this? Uh, I suppose, from my own perspective, um, I, I think an important part of what, what, what I've been doing and some of my other colleagues uh, are doing, apart from the actual, as it were, the actual empirical research, doing the experiment, analysing the data, and so on, the kind of conceptual... Uh, analysis, the dissection I, I talked about, is, isn't in the same category. And to me, that mm. is kind of the most philosophical sort of aspect of this. And the other thing, which is a more tr- almost trivial level, I suppose, is we were talking earlier on about uh, the origins of science and so on, and um, natural, the, the expression natural philosophy, and that um, the main journal, probably the most prestigious journal of the Royal Society, is still called Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. Several of the papers in this list are in that. And after a year, they're all free. They're, it's open access. So you know, anyone here can read those. Just a, another aside. Okay, coming back to okay, the qualitative versus quantitative uh, issue is something I, I think about quite a lot. Um, and um, I guess one of the things I should mention is I didn't mention one of the three main aspects of, of the dissection that I've uh, alluded to at the beginning, and that's the one about what the content the cultural behaviour is. And that is perhaps one where the biggest differences are to be found. But then, of course, that just raises the question, well, why? Um, so one might think of content like, as you mentioned, religion, music, uh, mm-hmm. language, uh, really, um, in, in, the, in the full sense, um, where I think one can make a good case for saying there's perhaps a qualitative uh, difference. Um, you then talked about the normative versus or normative moral uh, aspects of, of cultural transmission. There's a distinction made, which was first made in, in social psychology, between two different forms of conformity. That's to say, doing what, what, what most individuals are doing. One is informational, and this, I, to me, this is a kind of a functional explanation for why it, why the conformity is there. Is informational that in fact what most people are doing as it were, filtered out from reality, what is the best way? So, you know, you, you plant your, your marrows at this time of year in this kind of soil, in these conditions, that's what everybody does, and perhaps that's because that's the best. And so that's kind of informational conformity, and that's contrasted with 
what's called different things, but often normative conformity, that you're doing that because it's important that, in fact, that is what everybody is doing and you are doing the same as them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could... It's difficult to know, well, how would we address that uh, in, say, primates? But perhaps uh, we thought when we were trying to work out um, why that one male who transferred and didn't conform to what the rest were doing was doing what uh, was, was sticking with what he knew. And remember, he was the one who rose to high rank, so he wasn't outranked by anyone. If it was informational conformity, in other words, it's good to switch to what everyone's eating locally because probably that's the best stuff to eat. You know, it may have seemed that the other stuff was good where you came from, but you moved to a different place now. So when in Rome, do what the Romans do because you know they've here these monkeys have worked out what the best food is. Um, but if that was the case, then lecker ought to have changed as well. But it seemed as if he didn't need to. And so another explanation is it's not quite this isn't quite morality, but it maybe is normative in, in some more general sense that he has got to um, ingratiate himself, if you like, embed himself in the rest of the group, and to, to do what others do might be a, a technique, as it were, for doing that. This this immigrant male, he's basically wanting to get in with the females and. and you know, impress the ladies, and uh, that's what he's there for. That's why he's moved groups uh, to avoid inbreeding. Well, he doesn't know he's avoiding inbreeding, but he's programmed to do, if you like, by moving groups. But then, by behaving as everybody else does, he may get more accepted. I mean, that, that's still quite expectative. But I'm, I'm really just thinking, as it were, more philosophically, if you like, about you know how you might approach this um, and, and address that kind of question. Does, does that? I mean, to pass it back to you. Does that? Does that? Address the kind of thing you were thinking about. That's far from moral, which is, I think, you said Except, yeah, I mean, it, it gets to this big open question, really, which is what it takes to make a normative judgment or a moral judgment in the mm. first place. Mm. Does it? Re- I mean, does it require just certain kinds of emotional response, for example, that you feel a real kind of, you feel really angry when when someone violates the norm, say, or does it require something more cognitive, some kind yes. of distinctive concepts like the ability to judge yes. that? Yes. I guess, I guess when I'm talking about norms, like in that first nature paper, in norms of tool mm-hmm. use, or even in these monkeys, we're talking about norms really in a statistical sense, of, yeah. because that's what most individuals are doing. Yeah. I've just been refereeing a very interesting paper, actually. I thought it was very interesting. It was doing experiments, kind of lab experiments, uh, with humans, um, showing that the kind of judgments that people were prepared to make about what was the right thing or the wrong thing to do, moral judgment, was very much based on how they've been primed with information about what was the most common behaviour in the community they were in. It sounds sort of horribly simplistic that people may operate that way, um, but that's what this study is, is uh, suggesting. Uh, oh, you had well, I've just got one, one other note, note about um, learning for its own sake. Um, the, the one thought I had on that was um, really relates to Tinbergen's four whys. I don't know how Tinbergen's four whys uh, are very commonly appreciated in, in kind of philosophy of biology, but what Tinbergen said was you look at any animal doing a certain thing and you say, well, why is it acting in that way? And there are four, that could be actually four different kinds of questions. Or I think the easiest way to think about it is there's four very different kinds of answers to the question why. One is a causal one about what the immediate internal and external factors are that are making it happen. 
another one going back in time is developmental. It may be something to do with, the, with what that individual's experiences were when they were a child and, and so on, and their formative experiences that have made them act that way. So that's bringing in learning, certainly. Um, but then further back, it may be two kinds of evolutionary explanation. One is the phylogenetic one. You're acting partly in that way because of your ancestry. So if you're an insect, you're going to behave in a certain different way than if you're a primate, say. Uh, and then the other one is the functional one. What are the beneficial consequences such that in the teeth of natural selection we go on acting in, in, in this way? And so, and I think your question about you know, learning for its own sake, you have to think, well, which, which one of those are we talking about? Because I would say that even if you look at, say, animal play, mm-hmm. there's a case where at a causal level, in, in, in terms of immediate consequences, there aren't any beneficial effects. It's actually a waste of energy. However, it's all mammals play, um, and we think that's because natural selection has selected that behaviour because there are long-term consequences uh, that are ultimately beneficial from what you learn from play. So in causal analysis, um, it's not for fitness, but ultimately it is. And there is this expression, I forget who came with it, something like um, culture... You know, we may think that culture can uh, go to some extent in any direction. You mentioned, like I did, you know, contraception, and we can control our fertility. And that seems to be one of the most obvious cases of flying in the face of biology and, and fitness and so on. But um, the some of that goes on, but not that much. Otherwise, it speaks to, it doesn't keep going. So, what was it? The expression: sometimes biology can keeps culture on a leash. You know, it can go so far, but ultimately. Fitness comes into the equation, otherwise, you know, the species disappears. Yeah. I mean, of course, related to Timbergen's four whys is Maya's uh, proximate ultimate distinction. Yeah, the yes. That, uh, yes. You know, ultimate explanation is, is something like showing why, you know, why the thing evolved as opposed that, that, to the immediate right. mechanism yes. supported about. Yes. Yes. And I suppose a way to put my point is that there seem to be aspects of human behavior that kind of just don't admit of an ultimate explanation in a sense because we, we can't give them an evolutionary rationale because we're doing things completely at odds with our own inclusive fitness. I mean, do we ever find anything like that in the, in the non-human world or does that mark a genuine difference? I suppose is my question. Yeah, I suppose one general answer one could give to that is that uh, what, what has evolved is, as it were, certain sort of pre... Uh, certain cognitive dispositions and, and ways in which the, the mental machinery works... Um, um, because it's, um, set, there's a certain degree of plasticity and flexibility in that. It's going to, as it were, shoot off and, and produce various things that don't really yeah. uh, benef- uh, benefit uh-huh. fitness. Yeah. Um, but in the end, that can only go so far. Uh, otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, natural selection um, br- brings it back within limits, perhaps. So, you um, so I guess, you know, you do, there are cases where chimpanzees keep doing things in the wild... Like there's some adoption, for example, where males have adopted orphan infants, uh, which aren't theirs. And that seems to be just some, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's some tendency they have to be nurturant or whatever. And from their fitness, uh, it's probably misfiring. You know, it's not going to be to their benefit. But you can see why these uh, dispositions are there in the species. And most of the time, they do have fitness consequences, positive fitness consequences. So you subscribe to what's sometimes called the, the big mistake hypothesis, the idea that when we do these, these seemingly maladaptive things in the modern world, that's because we have these cognitive mechanisms that were perfectly adaptive in the Pleistocene, 
But as environments have changed, they're now producing behaviours that in the current environment detract from fitness. I think there's, there's some sense in that. I wouldn't say perfectly adapted, but, but you know, maybe adapted to certain conditions mm. in the past and, and uh, um, yeah, uh, circumstances haven't caught up with that. Yeah. We have time for a few questions from the audience. Uh, yes. Yes, sir. Dr. Keith Postler, um, guest teacher, long-standing um, at LSE, currently Department of Statistics. Um, you've uh, talked about more than primates and used the phrase, the living world. I want to push your idea and ask you how far you can go with it. Do plants learn? Um. Well, plants uh, certainly respond to the environment, um, but in terms of um, the way we normally think of, of learning, because I'm talking about a particular kind of learning, of social learning, um, then uh, it, it, it's not apparent that past experiences, as it were, are, 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 are held in some kind of store and then used in future. Um, and I guess that really relates to you know, the lack of a, a nervous system. I think particularly when we move on to social learning, I can't, I can't really think of anything where one would just start to say, well, plants are in some sense learn, learning from, from other plants. But certainly in the animal kingdom, that kind of process of social learning and indeed individual learning is, is, really, is very widespread. Uh, yes. Oh, sorry, you in the front, go ahead. Did you have a... Yeah. Yes, um, it's really a question arising out of Andrew's remarks after the lecture, although it's all connected. Um, do you think that the fact that various forms of science have now moved into areas, conceptual areas, previously studied by philosophy leaves philosophy without its central traditional concerns. You're looking at him. I mean, should, should I... Uh, I mean, yeah. so, um, well, I think, the, I think the answer is no. But I think in some ways it does make philosophy more difficult because, I mean, to sort of put my own cards on the table, I mean, I think philosophy should be continuous with the sciences and should be engaged with the sciences and has a kind of unifying synthesizing role to play, if you like, drawing insights from different disciplines together, connecting different disciplines that seem disconnected. I think that's a lot of the most useful work that philosophers, particularly philosophers of science, can do. So I think in the end it's directed at the same questions, but we have to recognize that the sciences are also discovering an awful lot of relevant evidence that bears on those questions. And so there's really no way to address those questions in ignorance of science anymore. I mean, I would say it, it certainly seems to have happened. That's to say, I, I see, uh, read quite a lot of philosophers' uh, writings who are really well informed about you know, certain areas of uh, our, our empirical science, you know, and citing our papers, and uh, therefore there's uh, a really useful uh, conversation. Um, so in the first, in early work I was doing on, on theory of mind, which kind of loosely relates to the social cognition I was talking about today, that was certainly, certainly the case as a whole raft of, of psychology 
uh, Daniel Dennett and, and Alvin Goldman and, and, and many others, you know, who are really important, I think, in stimulating thinking in, in, in psychology. And then you've got the neuro, there's neurophilosophy, isn't there? I mean, it's actually, that, that's become a, a term. So I think it's just, it makes a, a useful conversation, but I don't, I don't see the philosophy, as it were, as, as having the rug pulled out from it. It's, yeah. By any means, and of course, not not all philosophy is done in this way. But I think the best philosophy it does engage very closely with the relevant science. Um, One other point: Don't you think it's possible that as business and finance begins to dominate university life more and more, they will say, "Here are two subjects, subjects that doing the same thing. We can drop philosophy." <laughs> well. Let's see. <laughs> we hope not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gentleman on the right. Yeah. Thank you. I think uh, there's only, uh, probably you're right, there, there's only deg- difference of degree in the cognitive uh, ability of, of, uh, of other species like, um, like you talked about. Yet, there is a, so, such serious dif- differences I mean, yet, you see, the, uh, there is a light um, year difference between uh, the capabilities of human beings and our evolutionary cousins. And uh, I was wondering, I mean, okay, you may say that uh, it's a cumulative culture that is responsible for this, uh, this distance, but I think that's not enough. I have a feeling that there's something else, uh, which is this, our ability to generate knowledge. The human ability to generate knowledge is much uh, much what you call um, uh, much greater than our evolutionary cousins, and in this ability to generate knowledge, which has really given given us such a such a what you call uh, such a uh, success. I'm not uh, quite catching what you're saying there. That something knowledge, ability to generate knowledge, generate generate knowledge, gotcha. okay. and not simply transmit knowledge and imitate, but generate knowledge. And this ability to generate knowledge, I think, has contributed to the success of humanity. And uh, not only that, I, well, yes, okay, let me leave it at that. Thank you. Sorry, I like reaction on it. Would, w- am I somewhere? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I understand what you're near? saying. And I, I think um, my, my way of uh, thinking about a, a response to that is that um, for, for any culture, but particularly for cumulative culture, there has to be not only uh, the transmission of information, which is largely what I talked about, but obviously the innovation, if you like, the the, the generation of the knowledge or the generation of of innovations that then may get passed on, or not. Some some may be stillborn and and not be passed on. Um, And most of the work in this area of science that I've been talking about, animal social learning, and even human social learning and culture has really, I think, focused on the social learning process rather than the, the side of it you're raising, which, which is the innovation. Um, and you can see more innovations get, getting brought into cultural evolution in, in the human story, the human history. I mean, you only have to go back to um, about one and a half million years ago and look at you know, stone technology. Um, which is already, you know, way beyond the, the divergence point of ourselves and, and chimpanzees, which is something like six or seven million years ago. One and a half million years ago, uh, you're getting stone tools, which are a Shulian type of uh, tool. You've probably all seen images of those beautifully symmetrical, pear-shaped 
um, and, and symmetrical in both, both planes. Extraordinarily difficult to, to make, but it hardly changed for nearly a million years, you know, between about 1.8 and 0.8 million years. And even by then, the, the brain was about the, twice the size of a chimpanzee. I mean, now for us, it's about three times uh, that, that size. Um, and after that, you start to see the accumulation and, and the sort of acceleration of, of, of exponential curve of, of complexity. Um, and I think it, it, it's still an open question how much that has to do with the ability to actually invent new, new knowledge or new ways of making stone tools and then everything else that followed, language and, and whatever. And how much to a more refined, uh, what did you describe it as, as high fidelity, or you talked about bandwidth, yeah. uh, kind of... Um, Copying uh, that's necessary for that, and because you, you do need both, you do do need both. Um, I, it seems to me, and I think most people who study the Stone Age at that point, uh, that the idea that some people have peddled that the the important difference was, in fact, on the social learning front, true the evolution of true imitation, chimpanzees don't have, was the answer. I think can't can't really work. Acheulean uh, blades are so difficult, complicated to make. Um, I think most people who actually do nap stone now and know what's involved would argue, no, you have to have really to be quite a good imitator to be that. So you have to have the imitation. But you didn't really get much cumulative evolution um, because things didn't change over hundreds of thousands of years. It's an extraordinary picture. But of course, increasingly, they have. Yeah. I mean, to just follow up briefly on this point about differences of degree and differences in kind, I mean, I, I agree that... Clearly, the differences of degree are huge. You know, the differences in, in fidelity are huge. The differences in bandwidth are huge, too. Nevertheless, in some ways, there's still something quite philosophically profound and interesting if it turns out that those differences of degree are the only differences. There's, no, there's nothing more qualitative going on, just those differences of degree. Uh, the woman in the white blouse in the middle. where we're primarily concerned with um, the relationality between species and how our relationship with the natural world, be it object or animated, um, is going to determine the future of the planet. That seems to me a curiously old-fashioned philosophical question. But the the question I had is actually, um, as a scientist, what your view uh, is of memetics as a general theory of cultural evolution. It seems seems to be a kind of... um, elephant in the room in a, a, a seminar on the, the, the evolution of culture not to have addressed or at least engaged with memetics and whether that's a valid in relation to scientific theory or not. That's, I'm interested to hear your views on that. Mm-hmm. I think, um, so what, when you're referring to memetics, and I guess a lot of people will know, in, in Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, the, the last chapter, he, he talked about the analogy between cultural units, which he called memes as a, the analogy of genes. Uh, things like tunes and um, well, so any bit of culture that gets passed on is a kind of replication in the same way as the gene, in some sense, the same way as, as genes replicate. Um, and uh, some uh, following that, uh, some academics did try and sort of create a, a field of memetics and they, they described that. And there were a few books uh, about that. Um, However, I think it is simply the case that it hasn't really caught on. The, um, 
hasn't exactly died away. And, and it, interestingly, the, the expression has entered everyday language, and you hear quite often people talk about uh, memes. You know, they, they know that idea, and it's kind of a kind of a handy, handy word. You know, we, we kind of know what it means. But I think for any academic uh, investigation, perhaps the reason it hasn't succeeded is because it is this idea of, of a unit. And there's always that almost definition, I suppose, into philosophy, you know, philosophers could sort this out for us. Um, wh wh when is a meme not a meme? I mean, if you mm -hmm. what, what is, if you think about religion, I don't know, is Christianity a meme? Or is, um, you know, is the altar a meme? And, and all that, you know, start to di dissect different kind, different forms of Christianity. Are they separate memes and all the different bits mm -hmm. of, of uh, ritual and so on that go up to making, you know, Christian act, as it were, which, which are the means? How many means are there? Um, and you never seem, you know, you, you're quite quickly yeah. lost in, in confusion, I think, and that, that's one of the reasons for that. Interestingly, there have, have been a few papers published in, in, in good journals, empirical studies, and they've talked about memetics. And um, interestingly, I think some of those are in the animal field. I seem to remember there, there was one about, you know, I talked about birdsong dialects, and they had a memetic analysis of that. But perhaps it's just a term for behavioural units. You might say, in fact, <laughs> um, we, we, we're following up on the chimpanzee study, I, I, I told you, but it's become so complicated that it's one of those things that just keeps getting well. Maybe next year we'll be able to publish it because there are so many more behaviours. And I talked about 39 cultural variants, and we could say, well, so 39 memes? Chimpanzees have 39 memes? You know, how many do orangutans have? And Kind of, that's what we're saying. So that would be a quite re reasonable kind of loose term, as it were, to apply to that. But um, I'm not sure it gets us any further than that. So I'm rambling around a bit, but I hope I've... I've you know, I take it that you know, one motivation there for using the term cultural variance rather than the term meme is to try and get away from the idea that cultural inheritance is particular. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, I think, I think you know, th that's one place that the analogy breaks down. I think there's lots of really interesting analogies, and um, if, if any of you are interested more in those analogies, of, as it were, being genes type, um, my uh, brilliant PhD student, Alex Masoudi, who's, uh, uh, he's in London now, he's, no, he's moved to Durham. Uh, anyway, he and I and Kevin Leyland published a paper in Behavioural and, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, and also an earlier one in Evolution, talking about the ways in which cultural evolution is Darwinian. Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably helpful to come up with a positive answer to that if you set aside memes because that caused so much controversy and, and confusion, mm -hmm. I, I think, in, in this area. And Masudi has a book, doesn't he? Yes, cultural book. evolution. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all the time we have tonight. Uh, we hope you'll Google the Forum for European Philosophy to keep following the upcoming uh, events. And let's uh, just thank our speakers one more time for a lovely discussion.